Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 73, Psalm 73, and uh, good to see you here. Look forward to seeing how God uh, moves uh, in our hearts as we're in His Word this morning, but do want to just uh, back up and say uh, last Sunday was a great day. Uh, thank you to everybody who helped make the trunk or treat happen last Sunday afternoon and evening. Yes, you can let them know how much we appreciate them, all the... Uh, the volunteers and just everybody who helped make it happen. Uh, one person in particular, uh, Michelle Hudgens, she is our uh, kids ministry director, and she is our staff point person for that event, and just want her to know how much we appreciate all the effort uh, that was put into that for the weeks and the months leading up to that event. Can y'all help uh, me let her know how much we appreciate her? So the guesstimate is that uh, around 1,500 to 2,000 people came onto our campus as a result of the trunk or treat from our community. And just be in prayer with me that the seeds that were planted, gospel conversations that were had, and just people who uh, walked onto our campus and realized that we're here. We're a living church. We're here in our community to serve people, uh, that those people will know that we're here at a point in their life where they may need some help. And so I pray that God will use that event. It's our biggest outreach event of the year. So pray with me that God use it uh, in some really cool ways as we move forward. All right, so y'all should be, uh, you should be extra full of energy this morning. Did you enjoy that hour, extra hour of sleep this morning? Yeah, uh, two of you did. All right, no, more of you did, right? And so you guys should be awake and with me this morning, super attentive. If you're still waking up, uh, let's do an exercise that will uh, wake our minds up a little bit. All right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off uh, the line to a song. So <clears throat> let me get myself ready. And you're going to need to finish it together as a group, all right? You're going to be a choir this morning. So together, collectively finish the line to this song, all right? Let's see if I can do this, all right? Here we go. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jeb. Poor Mountaineer, buddy. There you go. Some of you knew that one. Some of you knew that one. All right, let me do a song that's a classic song over the last 50 years, all right? Wise men say only There you go. That sounded pretty good. All right, let's see. Let's test your Christmas music knowledge, all right? Here we go. Let's see how, uh, how, how good you are. All right, Frosty the Snowman. All right, let's do that again. I'm going to give you a little bit more, all right? And then you can do the other half. All right, here we go. Frosty the Snowman was a jolly, happy soul with a... That was pretty good, all right? Now, we're going to knock this one out of the park together, all right? I want you to get this one. I'm, I'm telling you, I want everybody 100% participation, all right? There's no reason why anyone in here should not be participating. Here we go. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. There we go. Someone over there is extra excited, all right? Mike Oxen came up to me afterwards and said, hey, you got one of those lines wrong. And I legitimately was like, what? He goes, it's fra ra 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 Off with the goose's head, all right? If you're a Christmas story fan. It really is amazing. It really, we could do that for hours, right? It's amazing how many songs and melodies and lyrics have stuck to us, all right? So music is a, whether you like it or not, music is a real part of our life. We have our favorite songs, our favorite Christmas songs, our favorite songs of different genres. You and your spouse may have a special song. Hey, many of you may have experienced the healing power of music. You know, when God gives us, he gives us the gift of melody and music, but when that's married with like, biblically rich, like really spiritual healing, biblical lyrics, uh, that God can use a song like that to actually bring healing to your life. And some of you, in a time of your life, God used a specific song that to this day is very special to you. Music is that powerful. It's emotive. 
It's got the ability to connect with our soul. So it's no wonder why one-third of the Bible it comes in the form of poetry and song. Songs that are meant to teach us some things, of course, but are really meant to also stir something in our soul. So we're starting a, a short uh, sermon series today called Songs for the Soul. We've done this before around this time of year where we're going to select a, a few of these divine songs from the book of Psalms and we're going to create a little playlist that's going to lead us right up to Thanksgiving that I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit is going to minister to our souls and really stir up some thanksgiving in our heart. And the first song that we're going to study is Psalm 73. And for our scripture reading this morning, we're just going to stand and read two verses out of Psalm 73. Stand as I read. I'm going to read in verse 25, and we'll read 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, I do pray that by the time we're done studying this text, that we will, that we will be able, by the power of your Spirit, by your grace, we will be able to say the words of those two verses with more sincerity, with more passion, with a more genuine heart for you, Lord, I pray that the, this anthem right here, that's an anthem of the satisfied heart in you, would be the anthem of our hearts. And you would do that work in us today as a result of studying your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I had us read those two verses uh, on purpose, right? Many of you have probably heard those two verses. Those are probably familiar to you. Those may be the only two verses out of this whole psalm that are familiar to you. And as I just mentioned, even in my prayer... This is that, that those two verses are like the anthem of a person who's satisfied in God. Now, as a believer, you should at least be able to say, all of us should be able to say, as you read those two verses right there, 25 and 26, that, that is, those are some incredible, powerful, beautiful verses right there. But the question is, how many of us could honestly say that those two verses describe, honestly describe the posture and the attitude of our heart this morning? See, the reality is that those two verses are where a lot of us want to be this morning, but not, of, not where a lot of us are. And to be honest, it, would, it may feel difficult to even connect with the author who would write something like this, right? It's like, okay, I hear what he's saying. That's beautiful. That's powerful. But what world did this guy live in, right? Did he not live in the world that I live in with all the challenges and the difficulties that I walk through? And isn't that true? How often do we read portions of Scripture in Scripture like this, verses 25 and 26, and it almost feels like the author, I believe it's true, but it, like to live this out, it feels like the author who wrote this had to be at some other spiritual level above me. I'm not sure if I'll ever be at that level that they are. Well, if you only read these two verses in this psalm, it will be difficult for you to relate with the author of this psalm. But when you study the whole psalm, when you study all of it in its entirety, you realize, man, we got a whole lot in common with the person who wrote this song. We realize that it took him 24 verses to get to the place that we just read just a moment ago. It took him 24 verses to get into the posture that we see him in of being satisfied in God. And my prayer is that as we study this psalm in its entirety, as we, as we study and follow the psalmist's progression in his faith, that it'll bring all of us more to that place of genuine satisfaction in God. Do you long for that this morning? I hope you do. 
I didn't ask, are you there? I'm talking to those who genuinely love Jesus. You know you're saved. You know you're born again. You know you're going to heaven. But you're honest enough this morning to say, I know I should be at verses 25 and 26, but I know I'm not there. Oh, but I want to be there. Well, for a moment, let's talk about the author this morning. Under King David, we know the Holy Spirit, of course, is the ultimate author of Scripture. But he moved through human authors. And let's learn a little bit about the human author of this psalm. Under King David, there were 38,000 men who were set aside to do different ministerial roles uh, in Israel. Out of that group, 4,000 of those men were selected and given responsibility to lead God's people in worship through different, you know, using their giftedness and using instruments and music, musical, different musical abilities. And then out of those 4,288 who had a unique vocal ability were given the task of leading people, actually being the worship leader with the gift of singing that God gave them to lead out in worship through music. Out of the 288, there were three people selected to oversee those 288 worship leaders who were divided into various uh, choruses or choirs or worship teams. And then out of the three, there was one. There was one main worship leader in the nation of Israel. Out of 38,000, there was one. A man who was a gifted musician. A man who had a sincere heart for the Lord. This is the one man who had such a genuine faith and who loved God and served God in such a devoted way. This is the one that they selected to lead the people in worship through song when the Ark of the Covenant was brought out in the midst of the people. And this man's name was Asaph. In the book of Psalms, there's 12 songs that were written by this man. Why would I spend so much time to talk about 38,000 down to the three, down to the one, this man named Asaph? Why would I take so long and, and, and go into so much detail about this guy named Asaph? Because this morning, as we study the 73rd Psalm, I want you to be very mindful of who's writing what we're about to read. This is not a non-believer going on a rant. This is not someone who is not walking with God, us just kind of reading their ramblings about their frustrations with God. This is Asaph, a respected, God-fearing spiritual leader in Israel who puts his pen to the scroll and gets honest. And I want us to see two truths, two realities in this text about our lives as Christians. And I want this to encourage us. I want this to stir our affections for our king today as we see the progression of this man named Asaph's faith. Number one, we see this. We see this reality. We see this truth. Our faith as believers can be shaken. We can be shaken to our core by confusing circumstances in our world. Look at how it starts. Let's just walk through this text together. It's a little different this morning. I'm going to walk us through this. Look at verses 1 and 2. What does he say? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So see, we see that he starts off with truth. God is good to those who are faithful and obey his commands, who are pure in heart, he says right there. He's stating a truth about God's character and about the way that God relates to people. But then in verse 2, he gets real honest real quick. And he says, that's true about God, but let me tell you about a time in my life when that truth was slipping away from me. Listen to what one of the godliest 
men in the nation says in the very next verse. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts looking he starts looking around and seeing how prosperous all these ungodly people around him seem to be. That word prosperity there is the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace. He started looking out at the world and at people who weren't serving God, who weren't making any of the sacrifices that he was making to live for God, and they looked to be at peace. Everything in their life looked good. And he starts to want what they have. And then look at verse 4. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. All right, now you read that. That doesn't sound like a good thing to us right there. But in that day, it wasn't a put down. It just meant healthy and strong. Asaph is like, hey, I know some Christians. I know some dear Christian people who are having trouble getting food on the table. And then I'm looking out at these pagans who are living the high life in shape. Once they got the nice clothes, they they look like they're loving life. It doesn't even look like it hurts when they die. Verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. That word stricken, your translation may say plagued. It literally means physical contact. Here's what he's saying. These people seem like they go all the day long, every week, every month, every year. And it's like none of the bad things in life even touch them. Verse 6 and 7. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. That word fatness, that's a different word than we find in that earlier verse. And this means, this literally means the best cut of the meat. Here's what he's saying. God, I'm sitting over here looking out at this world and I'm seeing all of these ungodly people getting the best of everything. They're getting the best jobs. They're getting the best promotions. They're getting the front row seats. They're getting the best house. They're getting the most popularity. They're getting the best of everything. And then what makes it worse, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. He's saying it's bad enough that everything good seems to be happening to them, but they're arrogant about it. Verse 10 and 11, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High God? God, they're taunting us. They're saying, We don't even believe in God. And look how good we have it. In verse 12 he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Always at ease. Do you hear what's happening in the heart of Asaph? In these first 12 verses, he's becoming very confused by and envious of how well the world who couldn't care any less about God seems to be doing. Ever been there? Well, you're like, God, I'm over here trying to serve you. God, I'm over here trying to live for you. Why is it that my life seems to be difficult and the people that don't love you are the ones who seem to be doing so well? If anybody's life should be falling apart, it should be theirs. And that's, we're usually okay with that, right? We wouldn't maybe say that out loud. That's usually how, how we feel. And yet this psalm reminds us we live in a world that doesn't work that way. We live in a world where we run into regularly seemingly happy lost people. Now God, funny thing is God tends to put those kind of people in your family. He puts those people around you that your neighbors, you work around them. Those are when some people coming to your Thanksgiving dinner here in a few weeks where you're going to be sitting across from them and, and you're going to be thinking. You mean looking at them like, there's no way they can be that happy. Like if I can just get them to admit that they're not happy, I'll be happy. 
Like, listen, I know you look happy on the outside, but inside, I know you're miserable. I know you're not happy, right? And they're like, no, I'm actually really happy. I'm actually loving my life. That can't be true. I need you to really introspectively look within yourself. Don't you see? Don't you see that you hate your life? That is really, really bad? That you're really not fulfilled? That you're really not satisfied? No, I, I love my life. Everything's going great. No, that can't be true. Late at night when you lay in your bed and you stare at your ceiling and you're dealing with your thoughts and you're thinking about your life. Don't you feel the unhappiness of your life weighing on you like a lead weight dragging you down into a pit of despair? No. Late at night I lay on my $10,000 mattress and I watch TV on my 100 inch 4K LED flat screen TV in my 5,000 square foot house and I actually go to sleep quite peacefully. I love my life. If anybody seems miserable, it seems like you, Mr. Cranky Christian. I'm not miserable. How dare you say that I'm miserable? Don't you sense the joy, 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 joy down in my heart? Don't you want to become a Christian? No. Have you experienced that? When you start looking at people who aren't following God, and they seem to have a better life than you. And if you're real, it fills you with envy. Like, God, it's just not fair. We're in a church where, through the years, you, haven't you seen people walk this path? God, we're doing everything as a couple to follow you, and we cannot get pregnant. And yet, I look around at seeing people who have no desire for you. They've had four or five kids in the last four or five years. Maybe you're single and you've tried to honor God in your relationships. I, I mean, I've tried to trust God. I've tried to lean on God. I, I've tried to seek God in my relationships and do what's right and trust Him through all of it. And here, here comes another friend, another girlfriend who I know don't love Jesus. I know she's broken all the commands when it comes to how you deal with the relationships. And here she comes waving that finger with her, with her ring on it in my face again. Look, look what happened. I got engaged and I say, man, I'm so happy for you. And inside, I'm like, I'm going to break that finger off if you don't stop waving at my face. You're like, man, I'm coming to church. I'm trying to do everything right. I mean, I've, I've tithed. I've, I've been faithful to come and serve in this church. I've tried to serve God at my job. I, I, I've tithed. I've tried to do what's right. I've gone into my work and I've tried to see it as my mission field. I've tried to honor God with the way I work. I've worked really hard. At my workplace, God, I've tried to do what's right. And yet I'm the one that is in the boss's office and he's looking at me saying, hey, we got to eliminate some positions. Yours has got to go. And then I go home and I got my neighbor who is a pagan. He don't love you. He's mean as a snake. He's lost. And yet he walks over to my yard and says, hey, man, look at this picture of this new Big old boat I'm about to buy because you know what? I just got promoted from manager to, general, to regional manager of my business. And you think, man, I'm happy for you. And inside you're like, I hope your boat sings. <laughs> Ever have those moments? God, it, it doesn't feel right. I'm the one who's serving you. I'm trying to do what's right. Why am I the one with kids, with kids that, are, that are causing all the problems? Why am I the one with financial issues? Why am I the one with relationship issues in my marriage? Those are the kind of emotions Asaph is experiencing as he's living his life in a world where sinners prosper. 
And he reaches a low, low point, verses 13 through 16. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand all this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Wearisome. Some of your translations may say troublesome. It means to labor to exhaustion. And here's what he's saying with all this confusion in his mind about how the world is operating and about how they seem to have theirs and I don't seem to have mine. God, I have done all this stuff for you. God, it's done nothing for me. It feels like me living for you isn't worth it. And I'm wearisome. I'm I'm just wore out by all of it. Can anybody identify with Asaph today? Has anybody lived in the first 16 verses of Psalm 73? I wonder how many wearisome believers this morning are smack dab right in the middle of the first 16 verses of this psalm. And if you are, this is what I want you to think about. Hey, be thankful for Asaph this morning. And his honesty in the song. I thank God that in his sovereignty, he put this in the book. I don't know about you, but it's good to know that godly people like Asaph struggle like this. That godly people wrestle with things like this. All of us do. And I'm also thankful that the God who shows us that all of us struggle this way. And when we think it's just us, it's not just us. We can also be thankful that his same word and even in the same passage shows us a way to break out of the first 16 verses. Shows us the key to get from these first 16 verses to verses 25 and 26. That's the big question. How do you get there? I mean, we just looked at where he's at. How does he get to verses 25 and 26? That's quite a transformation. The turning point and the key is verse 17. Asaph says, hey, that's where I was, first 16 verses, until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. We see here our faith can be shaken by confusing circumstances in our world, but we also learn here our faith can be strengthened by drawing near to our Lord. Sanctuary in the Old Testament was the place that symbolized among God's people the presence of God. And here's what Asaph's saying. Everything changed in my life. Everything changed in my heart when this happened. I came into the presence of God. We see where he was living until, verse 17, circle that word, until. Often the problem with a lot of us is there's way too much time that often passes by until our until moments. We like to camp out in verses 1 through 16, right? For days, for weeks, even for months. And what this passage is showing you is that what you need, what we all are in desperate need of, is the presence of God in our life on a daily basis. Christian, here, listen here. There is nothing on earth as precious. There is nothing on earth as It's powerful. There is nothing on earth as significant in your life as a disciple than you daily drawing near and experiencing in a fresh way the presence of God in your life. And as Asaph draws near to God, the presence of God dramatically changes his perspective in a few key areas. Here they are. Number one, drawing near to God changed the way he viewed the world. 
Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You see how his perspective changes towards the, towards the world? Those are the people he just wanted to join. Those are the people he was just envying. Now it looks different for Asaph. A second ago, he wanted their fame. A second ago, he wanted what, what seemed to be a trouble-free life until he drew near to God, and in the presence of God, his perspective about the world changes. It changes in a few different ways. First, he understands this truth. He says, he wakes up and he realizes, God's going to judge the sins of this world. In the presence of God, Asaph is overwhelmed by the holiness of God and the reality that God one day ultimately is going to judge sin. And he began to see this. This began to come back into perspective. The fuzzy came into clear view. He began to see again that the train, the world was living it up on and partying it on and indulging in their flesh on and chasing all the pleasures of the world on was headed towards the judgment of God. And when you see the destination where the train of this world is headed, there's nothing intriguing about boarding that train. Second thing, Asaph in the presence of God realizes that this world isn't all there is. Look at verse 20. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you arise, you despise them as phantoms. This is powerful. Lean in right here. He said, I realize that this world and this life that I'm getting so wrapped up in and that I'm so envious of, it's like a dream. Like a dream that feels very real. You ever have a dream that just feels like super vivid and real? Anybody dream like that? It, like those dreams that it takes you like a, almost like a full minute to realize, oh, thank goodness that wasn't real. Right, right. My wife has very, very vivid dreams. I'm going to share one with you. All right? I got her permission. All right? So recently, she woke up and she was like, just a little, like, kind of rattled. She goes, I just had the most vivid dream. And it was about you. I said, well, tell me about it. And she said, you were so excited in this dream. And she goes, it was real. She kept saying that. It was so real. You were so excited to get to Christmas morning. This has happened like a week ago. This dream happened. You were so excited to get to Christmas morning because you had a surprise for the church. And so there we all are. You kept it from me. And there you are, so excited about this, this big surprise. And you're just, you just, yeah, people aren't going to, they're just not going to be able to contain themselves. This surprise that I have. She goes, I was even excited about it in the dream. It just felt so real. I, this, the anticipation was just so big. And there we all were on Christmas morning. They were all on Christmas morning in this room, and it's packed, and everybody's leaned in, and it's like drum roll, and all of a sudden, I reveal this great surprise, and I was so excited, and I said, guys, here's the surprise, and she said, you, you, you mentioned this guy's name, you said, guy, I have a special guest with us today, and his name is Pastor Tim, and, and I was real excited, and all of a sudden, this guy with long gray hair begins to rollerblade down the aisle and begins to spin and twirl in front of everybody, and I'm like, isn't that great, and, and, and everybody was just really, really confused. And she goes, it was so real. She goes, what, what in the world was that? She said, what, what do you think that, that be, what, what is that? Where, where did that come from? I was like, what did you eat last night, first of all? <laughs> Sounds like a bad piece of pizza. But we do know this. If some dude named Pastor Tim shows up, we got service on Christmas morning this year and starts rollerblading down the aisle with long gray hair. Rebecca's got some powerful, I don't know, some prophetic dream power going on right there. You're going to let her interpret your dreams for you, I guess. How many of you had a dream 
you know, and it's bizarre maybe as it was, it just felt real. I've had moments where I have, in my dream, I'm reasoning with myself as to whether or not it's a real dream, which makes it feel like a more real dream. And that's a really terrible feeling when something bad is happening in the dream, and then you wake up and you're like, it takes you a second to go, praise God, that wasn't real, that felt real, but I'm back in the real real. Here's what Asaph is saying. He's saying this world, although it's real, is not the real real. The real real is yet to come. He's saying in the presence of God, he was in tune with the reality that the world is like a dream. And we're all going to wake up one day and it's all going to be over. And to the person who lives for the pleasures of the world and tramples Jesus and the gospel under their feet, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, will stand in judgment before a holy God. And as the writer of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And what that reality should do, that's not seeker sensitive, but it is biblical. What that reality should do in us, believer, is it should leave us more broken over the lostness of our world, not sitting around envying the way that they live. And today, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. There's a way off that train. You can embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can realize today that somebody's got to pay for the penalty of your sins. You stay on that train. You keep trampling Jesus and the gospel under your feet. You say, no thanks, not for me. I'll take the religious stuff. I'll take kind of coming to church every once in a while. Maybe to appease somebody in your family. But no, not for me. I'm not throwing all in. You take that path. You will pay the penalty for your sin. Or you can repent of your sin and get off of that train and let Jesus pay the penalty for you. Salvation can happen in your life. Jesus died on the cross and bore our sins on himself and he rose from the dead. Testimony that God accepted his life and his death as our sacrifice in our place. And you can be saved today. As Asaph moved into the presence of God, it changed the way he saw the world. Secondly, drawing near to God changed the way he viewed himself. Look at verses 21 through 24. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, I was stubborn and ignorant and just cruel toward you, God. Nevertheless, I, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Here's some things he understood about himself as he drew near to God. Listen carefully. Number one, he realizes his heart is very, very deceptive. Amen. Asaph's like, in the presence of God, and I realize how my heart's a big, fat liar. Right. It was telling me the people in the world got it made. It was telling me that the people in the world have what I need to be happy. My heart was telling me they don't have any problems. That they're not stricken by any challenges in your life. And it was lying to me. It was deceiving me to the point where, did you hear what he was saying a few moments ago? He was saying, God, it's like they don't even feel it when they die. They don't even hurt. when That's not true. That's how deceived his heart had made him. He says, I got in the presence of God and I realized how deceptive my heart is. And the second thing he notices about himself is not only that his heart lies to him, but he realizes the comforting, life-changing truth 
That not only does my heart lie to me, I am secure in the grasp of my heavenly Father. He realizes, hey, why am I such a wreck? Why am I so rattled? Why am I so concerned about what I don't have in my life? Why am I chasing after security in this world? God's got me. I'm in the right hand of God. He's holding on to me. Look at those three verses right there that he uses in verse 23. He says, I'm continually with you. He's talking about the presence of God. Then he says, you hold my right hand. That is so good. That is so important. That is so important for you to grab onto. He says, hey, he says, you take hold of my right hand. The Hebrew there means to seize. It means to grab. He realizes that as a child of God in moments of trouble, it's not me trying to grasp at God's hand. He says, when I draw near to your presence, I realize you got me. You will hold me fast. You reach out and you hold my hand. Asaph is realizing, hey, this this whole thing, this whole Christian thing, this whole being in Christ, this whole being in the family of God, this whole thing being a son of the king or a daughter of the king isn't a me holding on to God thing. It's a you got my hand thing. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. Asaph says, you got me. Then we, it builds on to that idea there with that next phrase in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. You will guide me. You will lead me in the right direction. My heart will lie to me. But here's what I know that is true when I'm in the presence of my God. He's got me. He's guiding me. That it's going to be all right. Hey, that relationship might have not turned out the way that I wanted it to, the way that I was hoping. Hey, that's all right. My father's got me. Hey, I didn't get that promotion. I didn't get that job. Hey, that's all right. When I draw near to the presence of God, I'm reminded God's got me. I got that diagnosis from the doctor. Hey, and that was scary. That rocked me to my core here recently when I got it. Hey, but as I drew near to God and into his presence, I realized that I'm secure. That he's got my right hand. Hey, it's all right. God's got me. He didn't answer my prayer the way that I was hoping that he would. But when I draw near to my God, I'm comforted by the truth that even when I don't understand what he's doing, he's got me. The third thing he realizes about himself is he draws near to God. This is so important. My heart will lie to me. My God's got me. And there's a future glory that awaits me. Look at that last line, verse 24. And afterward you will receive me to glory. He realizes the wisdom in measuring your life by eternity. Got some rain going on out there, don't we? Hey, pump this mic up, man. We're going to finish this sermon. Y'all hear me in the back? If you hear me in the back, raise your hand. All right, we're good. Because this is important right here. That last line right there, verse 24. And afterward you will receive me to glory. He realizes the wisdom in measuring your life by eternity, not measuring your life by this world. In the first 16 verses, what was he doing? What was his problem? He was measuring his life by this world. He was measuring his life by the here and now. How healthy I am right now. How good I feel right now, right? How good I look right now. That's foolish. There's an eternity beyond this world. Stop measuring your life by the here and now. Don't you see like just in, in, our, in our world and in this life that we're living, don't you see young people making that mistake a lot? Like I was in student ministry for a long time and how often I would sit there with a teenager who felt like their life was over. 
as a middle schooler or a high schooler consumed with who likes who and who knows who. And you want to say, listen, there's a whole life beyond you. You're so consumed with the here and now and what people think about you. You won't even see that person three years from now. You'll probably never see him again. There's a whole life beyond high school. I promise. And it's easy to pick on them, and yet they can perfectly illustrate how easily we as believers can forget that there's a whole eternity beyond this life. And if we don't keep that in mind, the calling that God has placed on your life as a Christian, in your short little vapor of a life that you're called to live out your life on this planet as a disciple, it won't make sense. If you're only trusting Christ in this world for what He can give you in this world. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the Christian life is just about what you get right here and right now, if you're only interested in getting yours now and getting your stuff now, you're missing the point of Christianity. It won't make sense to you. When you draw near to God, you realize that you got a God that promises His children way more than the fleeting treasures of this life that rust and decay and fade away. He offers you eternal life and His pleasures at His right hand that can never be taken away from you. When we draw near to God, listen, we see that measuring our life by this world is foolish. And we begin to measure it by eternity and then we properly discern the end of the wicked and we properly see how wise it is to walk with Jesus through this life. I'm almost done. Last point. Drawn near to God, last thing, change the way he viewed God. Change the way he viewed the world, change the way he viewed himself, it changed the way he viewed God. Here we are, we're finally back to verse 25. What does he say? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and and my portion. Strength in my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your good works. Hey, whom have I in heaven but you? What a difference nine verses makes right there. He went from, I've wasted my life, it's all in vain, to God, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. What changed? He came into the presence of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. He comes into the presence of God and he realizes two very important truths that will help make your Christian experience make sense. He realizes my God is enough. He went from I can't get no satisfaction to I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold. Draw near to God, he realizes that if I have God, I may have nothing in this world, but if I have him, I have everything. If I'm in this world and I have everything that this world has to offer, but if I don't have God, I got nothing. In the presence of God, he realizes God 
is enough. Christ is enough. No matter what you're facing this morning, and draw near to the presence of God and realize again, God is enough. He also realizes this truth. God is enough and God is good. Not only is he aware that God is enough, I need nothing else. He's, he's aware that God is good. And what he's saying is, I realize I don't need anything else. I realize I don't want anything else. But for me, it is good to be near God. What made the difference in Asaph's life? He drew near to God. And as he drew, you know, you know what happened in his life? He stopped thinking about them and started focusing on him. That's what happened. I don't know who them is in your life this morning. What this text is calling us to do is to get our eyes, stop being fixed on them, and to fix your eyes on him. To consider the character of God this morning in your heart. To get into his presence. You know what James says? James says James says a truth that's illustrated through the life of Asaph. And it's this. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Hey, just real talk. Does God seem distant to you this morning? Do his promises seem weak to you this morning? Does the reward of this life seem like it doesn't really compare to the reward of the next life and that you seem to be fixated on the beauty of the reward of this life over the reward of the next life? It may be because you're looking at those things from a distance. Draw near to God. Turn your eyes and your life away from this world and fix it all on Jesus. He is enough and He is good, which means He's all that I need and because He's good, He's all that I want. Let's pray. As you bow your head and close your eyes this morning, I got two questions for you. Number one, let me ask you this. Do you carve out time to be in the presence of God? How long is it between your until moments? Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering why you spend so much time in the first 16 verses. Why am I struggling like I'm struggling? Why can't I find peace? Why, I, I'm a Christian. It very well may be you're not drawn near to God. You aren't living in the presence of God. Christian, there's no substitute this morning. You need to commit this morning to start daily carving out time in your life to live in, to bask in the presence of God. Living in the presence of God is not mystical. It's not geographical. We can seek Him in His Word as we believe it and as we receive it. We can seek Him through prayer. Hey, we can seek Him wherever we're at. We can seek Him when we're walking through the grocery store. We can seek Him when we're going to Walmart. We can seek Him on the golf course. We can seek Him in our workplace. Praise God for the gift that we have that we can draw near. And we can draw near as a lifestyle. And it's what we need to do. You can live in the presence of God. Hey, Thanksgiving's coming up. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for the presence of God. I'm thankful that the privilege and the gift it is that we can draw near. And I'm thankful that when I do, hey, my perspective gets right. And I see this world the right way. And I see my life the right way. And I see my God the right way. He is enough. He is good. He is all I need. He is all that I want. 
Second question is, do you need to be saved today? If that's you, I'll be down front. would love to talk to you and help you understand what it looks like to receive Christ today. Altar's open. We're going to sing. Maybe you just need to praise the Lord and respond to the Lord through this song. All right, we're about to sing a song that's familiar. I'd encourage if you can't sing this song with a genuine heart in response to God's word because of sin in your life, because you're not focused on it, stay seated. Come to the altar. But believer, this may be an opportunity through the song that we're about to sing to worship God and to genuinely respond to what we just read about.